Thank you for tuning in to Late and Disorganized. I appreciate every listen, every time you tune in, every time you show me love by tuning in again and really appreciating what I have to say um, and my, my goal, my, what is the word that I'm searching for, my mission, you know, to improve the minds and the perspective and the outlook of the world because I have children and the world that I grew up in is not the world that I want my children to grow up in and if I can help that little by little drip by drip you know that means the world to me I recently uh, saw someone post somewhere and a huge conversation that a lot of people were having that, you know, one person wasn't getting the point because they haven't come across something that they're not willing to lose. And once you come across something that you're, you're just not willing to lose, it changes your pers- your perspective on everything. So you know you really got to think about what are you, what are you not really willing to lose, and what do you want to do because of that. You know, a lot of people are not willing to lose their life or the life of loved one. So they go out and they feel the best way that I could protect my loved ones and myself is with a gun. And at that point, they make the decision that I'm willing to kill so that I don't lose. You sit and you really think about how drastic of a decision that that is. It really shows the importance of not losing something essential to you. And that all comes down to love. And the way that we're programmed, the way that we see things on TV and society, our families, our friends, we're programmed to believe that love is obvious. Love is not obvious. What you love all have the capacity to love is obvious once you figure out what that is but love in itself is not obvious let me give a brief example in a conversation with someone that I was having I was speaking to them about something and, and, and in my mind it's a, it's a debate and they were telling me that you know you can't ever just any let anyone win and I told them it's not about winning it's about coming to an understanding and then they said this was a while back this was a conversation a while back and they said that you're never gonna find the right woman if you don't let her win an argument 
And I said, is that women like you? And she said, yeah. I said, so you're, t- you're telling me that I won't find a woman like you. Not that I won't find a woman that doesn't like a spirited debate. I won't find a woman like you that loves a spirited debate. And she said, well, there's more women like me than they aren't. And I said, well, then you're just telling me that I should just accept what's around me because what I want is unique. And she said, that's, 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 that's not what I'm saying. That's not the proper way to look at it. I said, well, let me phrase it to you like this. Most women, when they get engaged, they want a nice diamond ring. So what if at some point diamond rings were unique? You couldn't find diamonds for some reason. There was a something about diamonds, the price, whatever. It just made it a unique thing to get. It's hard to get. But rhinestones were everywhere. But you want a diamond. And the guy comes to you with a rhinestone. And now you're bothered and heartbroken that he didn't come to you with a diamond. He says, well, it's going to be hard to find a diamond. Why don't you just accept this rhinestone? And when I told her that, I could see the clarity that she understood. But then she just got upset and said, you know, this is what I'm talking about. You never want to just let someone have anything. I said whatever and the conversation ended on the laugh so then I met this woman later after this conversation and at first I did not like this woman and all we used to do was argue she just argued about every little thing and I was pissed off and I was like damn she can't ever let anyone just like be right And that's when it clicked in my head that instead of seeing it as this woman loves to argue, this woman is exactly what I look for. She likes to to, to bait. And the thing is, I don't think that she knew in her spirit that that was what she liked because the type of guys that she dated were the type of guys that were intimidating, that could intimidate her, that could intimidate others. But at the same time, she always argued and fought with these guys that she dated. So one day I approach her and she's like, well, you're not even the type of guy. The, the type of guy that I date. I said, well, you got to look at it. The type of guys that you date are the type of guys that you just like to argue with. But you arguing with them because you like to debate. And you're debating them on easy mode because you know once you get a guy in his feelings and he starts arguing with you, he starts getting loud, the debate is over, you've won. So now you're willing to accept the consequences of anything after that as long as you won the debate. So the thrill that you're getting isn't from the argument, it's the fact that you won the debate. You're living your life on easy. I'm not easy. And she just looked at me for a good 60 seconds and then handed me her number. (laughs) And we dated for a while. It ended for other reasons, but we loved the 
to go back and forth. And in speaking with her and broadening her 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 horizons and her mind, she came to me and she told me one day the way that I think, the way that we speak to one another, it helps her understand herself more and it helps her understand me and the fact that I speak to her in a way I do and she feel like she can't get away with anything she finally feels seen and that's a sense of comfort that she never experienced before and she never thought that that could be something that could happen in a relationship where her comfort came from just being seen, being challenged. And she loves that. Now, without that conversation, I feel like she would have continued to go through life looking for love in the wrong places because love is not obvious. What she loved was not obvious to her. The reason why she liked what she liked was not obvious to her. Love is not obvious. Life is not obvious. Thank you for tuning in. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast late and disorganized and I'm not sure if I want to do this uh, separately as just a quick episode or really if I want to have this keyed as um, the relationship segment but I guess I can go with um, what is your relationship with next year coming and what I mean by that is our culture meaning the broadcasted black culture is very fixated on the here and now I always was never the type of guy who was into cars. I was never really the type of guy who was into fashion, jewelry, things like that. Because I always felt like the fascination and a lot of that stuff wasn't in the procurement of it. It was in the envy that you created in others in having it. And my thought process was always, well, not always. Over the years, my thought process became that these things weren't important because I didn't understand the envy. Because all of these things are things that you can get with money. They're not exclusive. Anyone with money can get these things. And money itself 
isn't hard to get if your aim is to get money. There are so many different avenues to get money that it's actually harder to keep money than it is to get money. So with that thinking, it would be it would make more sense to me for someone to be envious of the fact that I have a significant amount of money saved at the same time that I have a decent place to stay, a decent car, a decent wardrobe, everything that's normal to get, but at the same time, I'm well off because I have money saved. That's something that's more to be envied because it's hard to do. It's not hard to get enough money to get an expensive car or to buy jewelry or to buy clothes. Like when I see things, the fascination with with designer as though getting the designer item says something special about you but everyone can get it. It's not exclusive. It's just you need a certain amount of money and money is easy to get. I've always, I keep saying I've always, but I haven't always. It took me a while to get to this point. My, I feel like you should be envious of people like Simon Biles and Serena Williams. Or even someone like, not even someone, but someone like Deion Sanders with what he's doing with Jackson State, taking a historically black college and trying to create something bigger. He has a plan. He has determination. He has foresight. He's trying to create something that never has existed yet. That's something to envy because that's something that everyone can't do. To me, I feel like you should envy something that can't be done, that someone, because not all of us are the same. It's okay to envy. Like, I know there's a whole thing about envy is a sin and all of that. I don't really feel like envy is a sin. Envy is a a form of admiration. Like, I can envy you. I can want to be like you, but as long as that envy doesn't come with a hate that guides me into disliking you or trying to stop you. It's okay for me to envy you. It's something to be inspired by. And I'm inspired by stuff like that. So I never was into cars and all these things because I always felt like the only reason that the vast majority of people are so into material items is not just because they want it it's because they want they want it and they want others to envy them for having it like as much as people talk about haters this and haters that a lot of people will hate you just for the fact that you exist and you aren't them that's a different kind of hate but there are a lot of people who actively go out to be hated they want to be hated they want to be envied 
that's always how I, I feel about cars and things like that. I just never saw the point in it. But in terms of what's your relationship with next year? A lot of times we look at people on the street who are crackheads, meth heads, drug addicts, heroin, homeless, and there's this feeling amongst people that these people just miraculously come out of nowhere. And it's this this chase for living for today. The materialism within the culture is about living for today. It's about getting a bag and and spending a bag. And I don't understand this where do, where do people think that these addicts come from? You ever sat and talked to someone who knew an addict before they were an addict and they knew them in school or they knew them in the past and bet money when they speak about that person they all oh, I remember when they had this and they had that and they looked like this and they looked like that and everybody wanted them. Those people were living for the day because they never considered that days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. They didn't have a plan. So now 10 years from the time when oh well, they was this oh now they're that and no one looks at the people that they envy right now that have this and have that and are always dropping the bag and consider that person isn't living for 10 years from now be careful who you envy at the same time that you can have envy It's the motivations behind what people are doing. Homeless don't come from nowhere. Drug addicts don't come from nowhere. They don't just miraculously exist. They were the ones who had the nice call 10 years ago. And now that call is an old beater. And that old beater was sold for drug money. They had the designer clothes that's 10 years later is out of style. They had the jewelry that 10 years later was pawned. I think that I was talking to an older gentleman. And he was telling me about a part of town where I live that was predominantly black. They were black-owned homes, black-owned businesses. The part that I'm having a hard time reconciling is the history that we've been taught 
about the strength of the racism of the past and the strength of the racism of the current. Where is the disconnect that even though there was the strength of the racism back then was much stronger than it is now, where did black people do business enough to be able to buy homes? In America. Because you now you got to work with them people to get a business. You got to work with them people to get a home. You got to work with them people to get a car. And it's hard if you're black. It was harder back then. But they did it. How? That's the part I'm missing. Like, how were these? Because the the government existed back then, and the hatred for blacks was even stronger from the government, from the police, from everything. Structurally, was much more deeper than it is now, but there were still black communities with black-owned homes, black-owned businesses, and in order to stock their stores, there weren't black manufacturers, they had to deal with them people. There's a there's a there is a disconnect between black history, real black history, and the history that is told to us. Cause a lot of gentrification comes from the fact that these homes were owned by this older black generation. That over time did not have the money for the upkeep of the homes or they passed away. They left the homes to family members who either moved away or didn't take care of the property. The value plummeted because of the violence and the drugs in the community. The homes were left to rot. You had people coming in, giving an offer for the property that no one in the family wanted to stay at. The homes were sold and the white people moved in. The people that were renting had to pay higher rent because the taxes went up. They ended up because of the, the, the environment moving out of that area. People who was stuck there moved into government housing. 
and then they go to the neighborhood. The funny thing is that right now, my children in school are being taught the same black history that I was taught. That I make sure that my children understand more than what the government is teaching them about black history. As much as I know. That's something that I don't know. How was it possible for them to create these communities if you are in the south and you travel to country areas there's legacy land where the land the street name is the family's last name huge acres of land how did black people that grew up in a Jim Crow area, era, with sundown towns as a reality, with a government that experimented on black people, that sent black soldiers overseas and treated enemy combatants better than they treated black people who were fighting for them. How did those same people have the money to purchase acres of land where right now as a black person it's extremely difficult to get a fucking business loan it's extremely difficult to get a home loan it's extremely difficult to get a car loan it's extremely difficult to get a fucking promotion at a job that you've been working for years and Our forefathers had acres. How? I don't understand. But when it comes to black history, for my children, Steve Harvey is black history. Michael Jackson is black history. Tupac Shakur is black history. Michael Jordan is black history. Jim Clyburn is black history. Individuals that are still alive and recently passed are black history. But as of today, in schools, there's still Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, Malcolm X. Without any context outside of what they're being held up for. I wish there is a part of something that is not being told. I went on the long rant. But the whole point of that was um, they were living for the next year however they did it 
however they were planning, they were living for the next year. And at some point, we stopped living for the next year. We start living for the day. And it's got a lot of us to where we are right now. 